Creative Nonfiction Podcast is sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts and Nonfiction. The Goucher MFA is a two-year low-residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere, while on-campus residencies allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. The program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu slash nonfiction to start your journey now. Take your writing to the next level and go from hopeful to published in Goucher's MFA program for creative nonfiction. CNF is also brought to you by Baypath University's MFA in creative nonfiction. Discover your story. Baypath University is the first and only university to offer a no-residency, fully accredited MFA focusing exclusively on creative nonfiction. Attend full or part-time from anywhere in the world. In the Baypath MFA, you'll find small online classes and a dynamic and supportive community. You'll master the techniques of good writing from acclaimed authors and editors, learn about publishing and teaching through professional internships, and complete a master's thesis that will form the foundation of your memoir or collection of personal essays. Special elective courses include contemporary women's stories, travel and food writing, family histories, spiritual writing, and an optional week-long summer residency in Ireland, with guest writers including Andre DeBees III, Anne Hood, Mia Gallagher, and others. Start dates in late August, January, and May. Find out more at baypath.edu slash m F A. Okay. Hmm. Riff. I want to get right into it, CNFers. Right into it. None of the usual nonsense. Today's guest is Julian Smith, a freelance writer based out of Portland, Oregon, and the author or co-author or co-writer of three books of nonfiction. Julian writes about science, conservation, adventure, for Smithsonian, Wired, Outside, Men's Journal, National Geographic Traveler, among others. His books include Smoke Jumper and Crossing the Heart of Africa. His latest, which he co-authored with David Woolman, is Aloha Rodeo. Three Hawaiian Cowboys, The World's Greatest Rodeo, and A Hidden History of the American West. It's published by William Morrow. It's a great book, man. But first, be sure to subscribe to the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, CNF, the show where I talk to badass writers, filmmakers, and producers about the art and craft of telling true stories. Wherever else you get your pods, go and subscribe. Just get it. Get to it. Join me on Twitter, at Brendan O'Mara and at CNFPod. To keep the conversation going, share this episode across your social networks so we can spread the CNF and love. I told you this would be quick, so let's do this. Let's get right into it. Here's Julian Smith, at Julian Smith on Twitter. And here we go. Well, I understand you're uh, from Mount Kisco, New York, in upstate New York there. Um, so uh, what would... You know, how did you get the uh, the writing bug or the journalism bug while growing up in upstate New York? Yeah, well, I I was always been a huge reader ever since I've been a kid. Um, the original dream is being an astronaut, but that didn't quite work out. So uh, I took a lot of writing classes in high school and college. Um, I'm sorry, this is my cat. <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> um, I, t- I took a lot of I took a lot of writing classes in high school and college. And uh, even though uh, my next career plan was to be a scientist, uh, I actually went to grad school in uh, wildlife ecology, but uh, that didn't pan out either. So uh, I'd always been, you know, really into writing as well. And so I decided actually prefer to write about stuff like science and travel than actually, you know, commit to being a scientist. So uh, my first career path was actually travel guidebooks. I did... uh, four of those, uh, three of them for Moon Handbooks, and one was self-published. So I still do a little bit of travel writing on the side, but most of it is um, science, conservation, and, you know, stuff in that genre, and, you know, some technology, some gear reviews, 
And, you know, the books, uh, this is my third book. So all the books have been uh, nonfiction. And yeah, so here we are today. Uh, so after you, um, you know, when you were after undergrad and so forth and you started, uh, you know, you had the writer bug, you know, what was the next step for you as you were progressing through this, through this life? So, so yeah, the first uh, pieces I had actually in print were for some local papers in Charlottesville, Virginia. I went to the University of Virginia and right out of college, I partnered up with another student and we actually self-published a travel guidebook to El Salvador of all places, um, kind of did the whole thing from start to finish, you know, wrote it, laid it out. I took the pictures, uh, had it printed ourselves in Singapore and actually got it onto the bookshelves. And that was a, a heck of an experience. Not one I'd, I'd probably repeat, but once you have the foot in the door, once you can, you know, show publishers, you've actually done something then they'll actually, uh, you know, write you back. So then I hooked up with Moon Handbooks and ended up doing a bunch of guidebooks for them. And in the meantime, went back to grad school for a master's degree, kind of the last stab at maybe being a scientist. But, hmm. yeah, that, that wasn't the path. Where do you suppose that industriousness and entrepreneurial nature of your writing career uh, came from at such a young age to be able to, you know, kind of put together and collaborate on a, on a guidebook and put it together yourself? Yeah, I mean, I've always liked kind of the creative side of things. Um, I've never been great at sitting at a desk and having other people tell me what to do. You know, I like the independence of it. Um, you know, I do partner up occasionally with folks. Uh, obviously, the the latest book uh, David and I wrote together. Uh, we've also we also did a, a long form nonfiction piece before this. Um, the guidebook was with a co-author, but other than that, it's just been a, a solo ride and it's, you know, it has its ups and downs, but uh, the freedom of working for yourself, being able to choose which topics you go after, um, I really, it's hard to imagine doing anything else. And as you were uh, progressing along as a freelancer, independent writer, um, as you, as you well know, it, it is, it's sometimes hard to get that toehold and then to sustain it. Can you point to some early victories that allowed you to get some momentum that you were able to parlay into more work? Yeah, well, the the travel guides are a really big um, entree into the world of travel writing. Um, you know, so I've done stuff along those lines for you know National Geographic Traveler, the Washington Post. I mean, once you can show editors that you've done a you know an entire book, uh, they'll actually take you seriously. But, uh, you know, as travel writing is, you can imagine, an incredibly competitive field. And it, so that's why I, I've drifted more into the science conservation and also because that's a little more interesting to me. But, uh, yeah, I would say the, the early books were, were kind of the turning point for me. And then a few early articles, you know, you kind of build on the publications, you know, you start small and then you slowly get bigger and bigger. And I was lucky enough to get a few small pieces early on in places like Smithsonian and Wired. And, you know, you just got you got to be persistent, but it also takes a little bit of luck and a lot of uh, networking and, you know, sending out ideas, getting used to being rejected. Um, you you got to have kind of thick skin and be self-motivated. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, you just you got to shoot as high as you can, sometimes even a little higher than you think. And uh, you'll be surprised sometimes. How long did it take you to hone a, a good, like, sort of pitch and query routine or even a pitch template that you felt like you could successfully uh, send out there with, uh, with a relatively good batting average? Honestly, I feel like I'm almost still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the criteria is different for every publication. And it keep it changes, you know, over time. The publications are looking for different things. But, you know, I'd say maybe 10 years into the freelance thing, I felt like I had a pretty good handle on it. You know, I, I read a lot of, you know, books about how to do it. Um, talked to a lot of people. We actually here in Portland, we have a, there's a lot of nonfiction writers kind of along the same lines. And so we actually put together, we call it a pitch club. Oh, where we cool. get together and uh, uh, usually at a bar, drink some beers and actually pass around pitches that we've written and critique each other. And, uh, you know, we, along with suggestions on where you might pitch it and we exchange 
uh, editor information and, you know, other nitty gritty about publications. So that's been a huge help too. That's awesome. Uh, when did, when did you go start that up? That was probably about five years ago, mm-hmm. I think. Um, you know, I met David soon after I moved here about 12 years ago. And, you know, there's you, you kind of uh, gravitate towards people who are in your same uh, profession. So we realized we knew a lot of people and we just figured, you know, to kind of put our heads together and collectively take on this challenge of trying to guess ahead of time what an editor wants to hear to get the assignment. And uh, yeah, that really paid off. That helped off. You know, it's it's everybody benefits all the way around. That's great because in, in a lot of ways, some people. Uh, I th- think this just comes with maturity over time that y- you start to approach this with a more abundant mindset versus like a scarcity mindset. Whereas, like if you can share this kind of information, it actually is a kind of a rising tide thing that helps everybody. Out. Exactly. Instead yeah. of it being kind of a zero sum game, like oh shoot, if Julian's getting published there, then that's one less thing I'm going to get published for. But the, it's that spirit of generosity is just, it's, it's awesome that you're able to kind of build that community up there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, you know that sometimes it takes a little convincing for folks to, you know, to to show them that it is a benefit. You know, because it's easy as when you're working for yourself to kind of get possessive over the contacts you make and the. The, the wisdom that you've accumulated. But uh, yeah, pretty, very quickly people realize that it's, yeah, it's not a zero sum game and you know, helping each other out. And, you know, this kind of a mutual aid society is definitely the best way to go. Yeah. And so much of the, the wisdom that, that say you've, you've accrued over the years is, is hard won. And sometimes like you you're saying, like there might be a tendency to want to hold on to that information because maybe it took you 10 years to learn something that maybe someone else who coming into the group is like kind of new to the group and they're new to freelancing. And then you're giving them like, you know, the cliff notes version that took you 10 years and, um, and they're learning it in 10 minutes. So like, uh, when, if somebody's coming to you say that's looking for, I don't want to say a hack or a shortcut, but they're trying to shortcut the process. Maybe like, what are some of those conversations that you have with people that, uh, might be looking to, not game, not game the system, but kind of try to try to shortcut it without doing the work. Huh. So you're asking, what's the response to somebody who's trying to kind of play the the field a little bit? I, I guess, yeah. There's someone who's who might be trying to find the shortcut before doing the hard long work and uh, not putting in the time. You know, and maybe um, siphoning off or parasiting off of your hard won information from like years of years of doing the thing. Yeah. You know, I, that's something I've never really encountered. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a balance between sharing information. I guess the flip side of what you're describing is kind of helping each other make it a a more efficient process. And, you know, there are, there are definitely some shortcuts, um, but there it's, it's fair game, you know, as long as you're not, uh, bad mouthing somebody else or, you know, trying to, you know, use some, I don't know, backdoor approach. Um, I think it's, it's all positive. You know, if you can, if you can help teach people how not to waste their own time and not waste editors time, especially, um, everybody benefits. Yeah. And to that point, what would you say is the, maybe some best practices for, for people who, who are, who are looking to maybe just streamline and just make their, make their pitches and, and, and find the right places for them a little more efficient. So they're, you know, they're just, uh, you know, just can feel like their energies are going more towards forward propulsion instead of just this flailing around hope, right. hoping. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say the, the first thing is, you know, uh, make sure you know the outlet and what they publish and so and then it becomes a lot easier to to think of your ideas in terms of what the specific outlet is looking for um you know keep the pitches short especially editors hate waiting through long pitches short and sweet and make sure you're sending it to the right person and make sure you spell their name right yeah. <laughs> and the name of the publication you know you know I've, I've known a lot of editors in my time i've even done a few years uh, as an editor of a science journal and you know, the first typo they see there, it's going on the slush pile because, you know, you got to assume every editor is, is just completely inundated with ideas and pitches. Um, and on top of that, I'd, I'd say, 
you know, networking with other people, trying to find people who have done what you want to do, uh, even if it's only to, you know, sit down, buy them a cup of coffee and, and uh, you know, it, it absorb some wisdom if they're willing. That's, that's helped out a lot. Don't be afraid to ask for help. And I guess the last thing would be, you know, there's a lot of organizations out there where a part of their mission is to connect writers, you know, like the National Association of Science Writers, uh, there's travel writer organizations, you know, they'll, they'll have some annual dues, but a lot of times on their website, um, they'll have either pitching guides or kind of a, a bulletin board system where people can, you know, ask for information and trade information. So, yeah, things like that. Mm. And as a as a freelancer, of course, you know you're always in the business of generating your own story ideas and trying to mm-hmm. trying to parlay that and snowball all that. So, how do you find your ideas and and nurture those, and then if they're worth nurturing, uh, then then start to really sort of lean into them. Honestly, it's, it involves spending a lot of time online. Yeah, um, I'm kind of a uh, you know I have a bad habit of going down rabbit holes online, (laughs) (laughs) you know, everything, everything is interesting, which is kind of a blessing and a curse at the same time. Uh, You know, reading the news, obviously, Um, you know, you can get on mailing lists of, um, you know, announcements from publicists that sometimes, sometimes help, but, you know, that's also, you got to keep in mind something that thousands of other people are getting uh, as well. So uh, basically it's keeping an eye out, um, finding sometimes certain websites are great aggregators of, uh, ideas and just keeping a running list, basically. I mean, I have folders on my computer with, you know, hundreds of potential ideas. And so then the challenge really becomes, uh, you know, triaging these lists and, and it's always a balance between what interests you and what you think might interest an editor. And a lot of times those are really different things. I mean, I, I've, ideas that I'm absolutely in love with that for the life of me, I couldn't figure out who to send it to. Um, but yeah, just keeping an open mind and open eyes and open ears really. And, you know, of course, talking to people, a lot of times I've come up with ideas while I'm on an assignment for one publication and talking to, you know, scientists or people on the ground and, you know, they'll say, Oh, have you heard of such and such? And I'll say, no, let's, Let's let's look into that. Mm. How much time do you spend on pre-reporting out a story before you feel comfortable pitching it? Um, that that really varies. Um, you know, I'd say, oof, definitely, you know, a day or two at least. Um, you know, it, it involves not just finding out more about the subject, but also finding out how much has been covered. And in what ways and in what publications, because, you know, obviously a lot of stories are so amazing that they've already been out there or they already are out there. But at the same time, uh, it's also good to offer a new spin on an old story that people have heard about. You know, you could say, you know, the story of X, Y, Z, but here's the backstory that you didn't know. You know, here's a twist on it. Um, which, you know, certain publications really love that stuff, especially if you can kind of overturn the conventional wisdom on a topic. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, sometimes it's really quick. Sometimes it's a matter of a couple hours and sometimes it'll take days or weeks, but you know, typically I would say it's in the days range. Mm. And when you've it, say you've got your idea and you know, you've, you've got a central figure in mind to carry you through that story. Uh, how do you then go about lobbying that person to want to be in the story, uh, you know, just baiting them long enough so that you can then at that point, you know, start querying out. And then if you get the green light, you can dive in whole hog. So what does that look like when you're, you're pitching your central figure? Usually it's just, you know, just asking really, Mm -hmm. you know, you say, you know, here's what I do. I find what you're doing really interesting. You know, a lot of times, you just call them up or email them. And, you know, I, I can probably count on the fingers of one hand the people who I've reached out to that aren't totally thrilled to tell you about what they do. I mean, everybody loves to talk about their job and, and what they're into. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think of the last time I reached out to somebody and didn't get a positive response. I mean, you might get no response if they're super busy. That's definitely happened. But if you can, 
you know, track people down and contact them and say, you know, I'd love to tell the world about what you do, what you're into. I mean, 99 people out of 100 are fully on board with that. Mm. And having been in the freelance game for a while here uh, and the way the way the the landscape of feature writing and magazine writing kind of contracting and all that. Um, how have you managed to kind of stay afloat and keep, you know, and be able to keep your oars in the water and keep making a go of this thing? Ah, good question. Uh, <laughs> the books help, you know, doing a book every year or two. It's nice to have a, a big project to work on, you know, with a big uh, chunk of money up front. Um, other than that, just plugging away, really. Um, one thing that I've done recently is um, I've paired up with my co-author on this recent book, David Woolman, and another guy, Chris Higgins, here in uh, Portland. All of us are, are you know, freelance writers with a, a lot of experience. And we've started a business called Delve. We're calling it a story studio. And so we, we work with ideas that we have and ideas that other writers bring us. Um, we help people craft pitches and help them place uh, ideas and stories in publications where, you know, either they have a contact, or we have contacts. And um, we have contacts in uh, the film industry in Hollywood where, uh, you know, you take these ideas and they can show them around and, you know, hopefully get a, uh, a TV or film deal out of it. So th this business has really started to snowball recently. We actually just had an announcement today where we've partnered with a, an agency in Hollywood. And, um, you know, we've uh, we've we had the last October we had a, we arranged a cover story in Outside Magazine for a writer here in town. So, yeah, that that's that's been a way that we've actually tried to get past the the role of simply pitching out ideas for other people to run with um, to actually working on ideas ourselves and helping other writers and ourselves uh, get ideas out there. So it's all nonfiction, long form ideas. And uh, yeah, the ball is really starting to roll. Hmm. So what, what are the logistics of, of that? Is it kind of like a membership thing that you pay into? Like how, how does that work? No, not at all. You know, we we just um, we're always looking for ideas from people. You know, they've got to be uh, meaty enough to, you know, sustain a long form narrative, and you know, not just a, you know, there's this cool thing out there, or you know, this person had an interesting life, but you know, they've got to have a narrative arc with uh, interesting central characters, uh, you know, beginning, middle, and end, as you always hear. Mm -hmm. uh, twists and turns help out a lot, uh, but yeah, you know, people come to us. And we we help them arrange uh, to get these pieces out there, and we, we sometimes we can offer a little bit of money for that, and hopefully it'll be more in the future. Um, but you know, they also the writer also gets the full payment from whatever outlet decides to run with the story. You know, we've worked a lot with the Daily Beast, um, Outside Magazine. We had uh, an arrangement with uh, Radio Lab, uh, where we were giving them ideas, and. So what, how the business, the Delve interest comes into it is um, we, we sign contracts with writers that say if this does become a TV show or a film down the road, the, that's the kind of profits that we would be sharing. But mm -hmm. up front, it's, we're not taking any money out of anybody's pocket. So, you know, it, uh, it works. It helps out all around. Everybody comes out ahead. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Um and in in the course of your own in your own writing and even other business interests, like what what excites you the most and makes you feel the most alive and engaged in across all your projects? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I kind of have a particular bug for interesting history stuff. A lot of my ideas are uh, historical um, events or people that nobody knows about, and you know, that they, they have this amazing story that also happens to be true. Um, I like, I really, I think a lot of the most meaningful stuff is the conservation stories. Uh, I write a lot for uh, publications like World Wildlife or the Nature Conservancy magazine. Uh, and where, you know, you, you're talking about uh, good things <laughs> that are happening in the conservation world. 
Um, that's kind of one of the reasons I, I moved in that direction from the travel writing because, you know, travel writing is fun and it's got great benefits, but you know, something like a good science or conservation story where you're getting the word out about something that's really meaningful and optimistic. Uh, I find that, I find that the most, probably the most satisfying. Mm. And as you were, you know, leveling up and starting to write for more high profile magazines, a lot of the magazines that so many, so many freelancers aspire to, um, what was the, what was that like for you to, uh, and even the, maybe the self-talk you were going through as, as you were leveling up and then realizing that you're kind of dancing with a new kind of fear, um, mm -hmm. you know, because it's going to be more visible and it's the standard is higher. Um, what, what was that like for you as you were you know, transitioning to that sort of next level up of public, of publishing? Um, honestly, it wasn't that huge a leap. Um, I don't know, maybe that mm -hmm. says something about, you know, if it's a confidence level thing or, or what, but, I've always just tried to do the best uh, piece, the best writing that I could. And, you know, early on getting, you know, fortunate enough to getting uh, gigs with, you know, the Washington Post when I was living back in D.C. Uh, or National Geographic Traveler, um, you know, even if it's a tiny little 300, 400 word thing, just doing the best you can and, most of the time, it seems to be well received. Um, I mean, a feature is another is another beast. Usually, the first feature for a, a, a high profile publication is a little bit nerve wracking. You know, you want to make sure that you kind of got their the tone that they're looking for, and you know, every everything is a little bit different. Um, but once you kind of get past that hump, um, it it gets a, a lot easier. Mm. And I I love the the uh, the the ice cream the Cold War piece uh, that you and David wrote for Epic Magazine that that piece was was just r really fun and like wrought with this conflict and and everything. Um, so how did you and uh, and and David come to want to like collaborate on a long form magazine piece of that nature? That was an idea that um, we we knew a an ice cream store owner here in Portland. And we, we had been given this germ of an idea about ice cream trucks actually came from the, the editor Epic. He was like, why don't, you, why don't you look for something about, you know, ice cream trucks? I'm sure that it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a hundred percent happy world. Mm. So we started poking around here in Portland and one of the, uh, ice cream folks <laughs> that we, that we interviewed, he said, you need to go talk to this guy down in Salem, who turned out to be Dennis, one of the protagonists in that story. And um, David went and talked to him, and he is an incredible character. Some people just seem born to be written about, you know, and uh, he told us about this kind of ongoing conflict he'd had with another ice cream truck driver uh, named Ephraim who was a, a Mexican, an immigrant from Mexico. And the more we dug into that, just the story just kept going and going. And it was alternately hilarious and dead serious. And it was just such an interesting balance of those two. Um, I, I mostly interviewed Ephraim and David mostly interviewed Dennis. And then we, we put these two stories together from opposite, you know, opposite ends of the, different versions of telling the same story. And it was, it was just, uh, it was, you know, sometimes you say these things almost write themselves. And this was one thing where we just sat down with these people and just took notes and took notes. And the story just kind of got, it was born like that. It struck me as a story, especially, especially for Dennis, that it would be, like I wonder what the conversations were that that you guys had to lobby Dennis to go on the record and tell these and, and tell the story because a lot of his actions are are pretty or well, they're kind of hypocritical to his ethos and kind of unsavory in a lot of ways. So I I wonder how you guys were able to successfully lobby him and you know an Efren too to want to share the story, which is you know it's it's part part petty and rival and this fraught with this rivalry in, in Salem. I wonder like how, how you successfully lobbied those guys to be written about. Honestly, um, 
again, it was just a question of tracking him down and saying, you know, I want to hear your story. I want to hear your version of this. Yeah. Especially if they know we're talking to the other guy too. <laughs> but with, with Dennis, honestly, it was more of a question of getting him to stop talking <laughs> than getting him to talking. He's just, uh, and he was happy to tell about all this stuff that was going on. You know, we also interviewed other drivers in his business but he was completely open and we're so grateful for that. He, he had no, you know, compunction uh, talking about all this stuff that went on. You know, obviously some of it was coming from, you know, uh, other people's versions of things and Ephraim's versions of things. But he, I, I don't know if I've ever interviewed somebody like him who, who he almost spoke to be quoted, you know, every, every, five minutes, you'd say, Oh my God, this is, <laughs> these guys speaking in entire paragraphs. And instead of like a lot of people, especially scientists, it's kind of like oh, pulling yeah. teeth sometimes to get them to just, you know, say something, I don't want to say interesting, but you know, something that you want to quote them in. But with Dennis, it was a question of, you know, choosing the best quotes from spending days with him. Um, Efren, you know, took a little bit more, uh, convincing. Um, but once he, he realized we were legit and we, we were not there to, to present just one side of things and we were genuinely interested in his story, which, I mean, his story before he even got into, uh, the ice cream business is incredible. Um, he, again, he's, you know, people are just, they want to talk about themselves. They want to talk about what they do and their experience. Did you find that for, especially for that story, that it helped that you and David were kind of taking um, each side of the story, like you predominantly interviewing Efren and he pr primarily taking on Dennis, that that was an easier way to navigate the reporting of the piece? Yeah, that definitely helped. I mean, it, it cut the workload significantly for each of us. Um, I mean, either of us could probably have done it on our own. But it was uh, interesting and, uh, yeah, I think definitely more efficient to split things up like that. Um, you know, I, I speak a little bit of Spanish, so that made it a little easier to interview Ephraim. Um, but, you know, and we also both got to meet Dennis and spend time with him. He took us around in his truck to show us, you know, all these places where all this stuff happened, mm -hmm. which was, you know, incredibly generous. Um, we even... Uh, took out an ice cream truck on our own here in Portland for an yeah. afternoon. Somebody, somebody loaned us one and we got to, you know, just see what it was like playing the music and tootling down the street and seeing the kids come running. You know, it, it, it's the more you can immerse yourself in a story, uh, the better you can write about it. Mm. And you said like with, with Dennis too, he was just kind of a quote machine. You're you know, scribbling like crazy. Um, in the course of your reporting, uh, what kind of uh, sort of tools do you have with you? Are, are you a voice recorder guy? Do you, or are you just like kind of an old school notebook and pen? Uh, both, actually. I mean, mm -hmm. it's always good to have the backups. You yeah. know, it, it, it definitely uh, rule one is to record it if you can. Um, and also, you know, pen and paper is is helpful. And, you know, especially for writing down the best quotes or even sometimes writing down the, the time on the recording, you know, at mm. 27 minutes and 30 seconds, there's a great quote. So, you know, to go back and look there, but uh, yeah, I'd say both. Mm. And so uh, what, I, what I wanted to really talk to you about also is this, this collaborative nature of working with another journalist on, on a story. Um, and this will obviously kind of feed into Aloha Rodeo. Um, so what's that experience like, um, you know, you, having to, you know, splitting the research, splitting the reporting and splitting the writing and the editing. Like what's that, what's that like for people who are used to just doing it totally by themselves? Well, it's, it's definitely different. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not common to find, um, uh, co-writing that's, that's actually evenly split 50, 50. You know, if you see two names on a, on a book, it's usually one person did, did all of it or most of it. Uh, you know, the ghostwriting or whatever, that was, that was kind of the, um, the story of my second book, which was you know, called smoke jumper. And it was essentially the life story of a guy up in Washington who does this for a living. So, you know, he and I spent a lot of time together. Um, I re recorded and wrote down a lot of stuff. Um, but you know, most of the writing was, was me. 
so this this Aloha Rodeo book with David was was still a new experience. And we even looked around when we were considering it, trying to find other writers who had done something like this. And it was really hard to find. So a lot of it was, you know, learning from scratch. But, you know, we knew we worked together well already. We were, you know, really good friends and kind of had a, a very similar uh, style and career trajectory. And we were lucky enough that the the rodeo book pretty organically split into roughly in half with, you know, the first half. Uh, most of it takes place in Hawaii and the backstory of the, the culture of Hawaiian cowboys. And then it kind of moves toward moves to Wyoming and Cheyenne, where they went to compete in the big rodeo in 1908. So that definitely helped uh, in terms of uh, splitting up, you know, basically the first drafting of these chapters. As, but by the end, we had gone back and forth and back and forth and edited each other's things over and over and, you know, rewritten each other's things that, you know, the, the final product is is completely equally both of ours. I don't think we can find any full sentences in the entire book where one of us can say that's mine. Mm. Uh, but it uh, yeah, and it definitely helps in terms of the the research, uh, you know, where one person can really dive deep into into one part of the subject. You know, in this case, it was, you know, David became more of the Hawaiian history expert and I was taking on more of the, the Wyoming stuff. So, but by the end, you know, we, again, we just had gone back and forth so much that, you know, I ended up knowing a lot about Hawaiian history and Dave got a crash course in uh, wild west Cheyenne history. So, you know, we basically everything comes out even. What becomes the challenge of, creating a uniform written voice on the page when you're working with another writer? Basically having thick skin and being mm -hmm. able to take constructive criticism because I'm sure, you know, as a writer, you get, you kind of fall in love with your own stuff where it's pretty easy to, to, when you write something, it's really hard sometimes to edit yourself because you're so deep into it. You know, there's that quote about writers need to be willing to kill their babies forget who said that, but it's sometimes it feels like that when you're trying to decide, uh, you know, if you have to cut whatever you wrote by 25%, that can be a really hard thing. But if you have somebody else telling you what they think is, is worth keeping and worth not keeping, uh, you know, basically in the editorial role that in editing can usually makes a piece a hundred percent and thousand percent better. Uh, so you, you just can't take it personally basically. And, you know, we were lucky enough that we were both in that boat. You know, there's some things we, you know, kind of jokingly knocked heads about, you know, mm -hmm. where, you know, I was particularly enamored with some, you know, side bit of trivia or, you know, the same with Dave. And we, there took a little convincing to say, no, you know, this is, let's stick to the main story uh, or let's word it this way. Um, but there was no major disagreements or major blowups. And, uh, you know, you just got to have a sense of humor about it and not take constructive criticism personally and, and, you know, be delicate about it sometimes. And did you guys, uh, carve out essentially a, a digital workspace or did you do a lot of the, the final rewriting sort of together in the same room? You know, we, we kind of have different approaches to that. I mostly used a, a writing program called Scrivener that helps you organize uh basically it's a file organization system it's also a word processor um but i'm just i'm much more of a visual person and i like to do everything digitally dave is much more of an old school um you know extensive handwritten notes and even editing you know printing out things and writing on them in in pencil and paper uh so you know that that, but at the end, both approaches worked. I mean, we definitely after we did the first drafts uh, and shared them, we started going back and forth and back and forth, and that was all electronic. But there was still also a lot of printing out and sitting down at a table and hashing things out. And at the end, we also uh, read through the entire book out loud which also really helps, you know, with the, the, just the feel and the sound of things. 
but yeah, they, our approaches were distinct, but uh, I'd say complementary. So how did you and David arrive at the story um, so that you guys felt like you could confidently, um, you know, tackle the uh, tackle tackle this project together? Well, the original seed of the idea came from when David was in uh, in Hawaii and just was at a at a history museum somewhere and saw a, a photograph of these guys, the central characters, and just you know a couple sentences uh, saying, "Yeah, they went to Wyoming in 1908 and won the roping contest of Frontier Days." And you know, like all of us who are into nonfiction, if you you kind of get the you get that little uh, light that goes on in your head and says, whoa, that's, I'm sure there's a lot more to that story. Right. And so, but at the same time, a lot of these ideas that you dig into, you find out, no, you know, it's, there's not enough there or there's not enough uh, uh, background information or it's, it's, you know, it can, it, you can tell the whole story in, an, in a feature, you know, two, 3,000 words. And not every nonfiction idea is big enough for a book. But, you know, once we decided to tackle it together and really started digging into this, this story, you, we just found that it just went on and on. And it, it was also it wasn't just this you know, rollicking uh, rodeo story in itself, but it really touched on a lot of uh, important big picture concepts like, you know, the passing of the Wild West, the changing from reality to myth. The history of Hawaii, the the role of cattle in Hawaiian history, which is something neither of us really had any idea. And most people who we talked to had no idea that cattle and ranching was such a huge part of Hawaiian history and, and still is. And, you know, the idea of diversity uh, in the Wild West at the time, the turn of the century, um, you know, gender diversity, racial diversity. And how that that was really a huge part of the story, you know, that's that's obviously um, something that we a lot of us are concerned about today. So it's not just the the actual plot and the events, which is you know a huge part of it. And sometimes that's that's enough to talk about. But if if the story ties into bigger important concepts, all the better. And this one did. Yeah, and, and the introduction in the late 18th century of these 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 cattle, these long, almost longhorn cattle um, on the Hawaiian archipelago is is really emblematic of the the sort of the closing in of the imperialism on the Hawaiian islands, right? Yeah, yeah, it was actually um, the cattle were really a tool of imperialism. They were brought by um, English uh, captains, and they were, you know, they were ostensibly a gift for the Hawaiians, which, you know, they they were. They they just gave them to them and said, "Here you go." And the Hawaiians, they kind of, in the first, in the, originally, just kind of blew their minds because they'd never really, they'd never seen a, a land mammal larger than a pig. Uh, but they were also a a way for the English to kind of spread Englishness around the world to make this was this was the heyday of the English uh, the British Empire and one of their ways of uh, assimilating other lands and cultures was to bring a little bit of uh, England with them whether it was the language uh, the foods or things like cattle so their their goal was to 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 improve relations with the Hawaiians but also to um, to to tie this these far flung islands into the empire using something as mundane as cattle. Yeah, and it, you could get a sense like uh, as the you know the first cattle were introduced, like that in a way was kind of like this imperialistic virus that was infecting the islands. It was only a matter of time before other you know other. Uh, you know, missionaries and other people looking to capitalize on these islands kind of as a way station for accessing the rest of the world. So you got a sense that, like, the world that the native Hawaiians had experienced was slowly coming to an end. It would inevitably come to annexation. Yeah, that was that's definitely the case. Um, you know, the Hawaiian kings at the time were happy to to take these to take these gifts 
And even though there there was there was definitely an episode of them running rampant around the islands, digging up garden patches and goring people, um, you know the Hawaiians were also very interested in what the outside world had to offer. At the same time, they were, of course, very concerned with preserving their own way of life. They were definitely tools of imperialism, uh, but they were also at the same time welcome gifts, and they turned out to be. Um, part of a very profitable industry for the islands where these cows were uh, slaughtered. They sold their hides. They sold the the tallow, the fat, uh, which were, were products that were in high demand in uh, around the world. So it really tied the islands into the, the greater sphere of the world, especially because they were, you know, as they were ironically so isolated way out in the middle of the Pacific, that also made them an important way station for anybody sailing across the Pacific. So they're in an in interesting way. Their isolation also made them the center of this web of commerce and trade. And as you as you guys write in in the book too, that you just kind of you don't necessarily realize that there is this the subculture of Hawaiian cowboys, and you guys detail how they how they come to uh, you know surface as sort of a selective pressure, if you will, to help try to wrangle the what ends up being the wild cattle. Um, so how did the, the, the cowboy surface as a vocation on the Hawaiian islands? Well, once, uh, once the cows were, you know, part of the, the wildlife of the islands, um, you know, they were, they were essentially wild animals. And, the Hawaiian kings at the time realized that uh, they needed to bring these animals under control because they were, you know, they were huge bulls running around with, you know, they were longhorns. So they had these six foot horns and they were, you know, they were really dangerous. And if they needed, if they wanted to make them, if they wanted to get the economic benefit from these animals, uh, they needed to bring them under control. So they brought over a handful of uh, cowboys, vaqueros from New Spain to help teach them how to basically be cowboys. And they, in the Hawaiian islands, they took to it very quickly. Uh, they brought, you know, horses were brought over pretty soon after the first cows arrived. And pretty soon this, uh, this particularly Hawaiian breed of cowboy had, they had adapted some of the the Mexican, the new Spanish gear and language and techniques and adapted them for the special demands of doing it in the tropics, in the, in the jungle or, you know, down on the beach. And very soon there was this distinct culture of Hawaiian cowboys called Paniolo. And they were as badass as cowboys anywhere. And they were doing it you know, decades before, even before the classic cowboys of the American West were. And so that's that's kind of the interesting twist on the story of the cowboy, and which is such a huge part of the national identity of this country, to learn that, you know, first of all, there were cowboys in other places, too. And they were their own, they were similar in some ways, and they were very distinct in other ways. And that's just kind of these these new hidden twists on familiar stories that I was talking about before that, you know, we find so fascinating. In what ways were the Hawaiian cowboys different than say the sort of the John Wayneian version that we're sort of familiar with on the mainland here? Well, some of their uh, gear was specially uh, adapted for use on the islands. They used uh, lassos made of rawhide instead of, the lassos and the ropes uh, on the mainland were mostly woven fibers uh, because rawhide lasted longer in these really humid environments. Um, you know, some of the other little details of their saddles and their, their spurs and their hats were also distinct. But I think the most, definitely the most distinct part of how they were different was how they did what they did, not out in the, you know, the sagebrush covered plains of the American West, but they did. They did the same kind of roping and leading cattle in this incredibly dense jungle where there was, you know, pits all over the place, collapsed lava tubes. Um, you know, they would get their, they could get their ropes tangled in trees. Um, there's a, a great story from the book about uh, one of the main characters, Eben Lowe, 
roping a steer in the jungle and galloping alongside this 2000 pound animal and suddenly realizing they were each going on opposite sides of a big tree. And he, he had to basically save his own life by getting the rope in the right position, but uh, ended up losing his hand because of it. And things like this happened all the time. And so it was, it was a really hard, especially hard version of cowboying as we know it. They would have to not just rope these massive pissed off animals in the jungle, but lead them downhill uh, across these barren lava plains on the, mostly this happened on the, the big Island of Hawaii and then down onto the beach and into the surf and swim them out to these waiting ships because there weren't any docks big enough to bring these ships into shore. So the, the Paniolo had to bring the cattle to the ships. And of course, you know, being Hawaii, there was the occasional shark swimming around uh, looking for lunch. And every so often a cow would just disappear. Yeah. And you brought up Eben Lowe, who ultimately lost his hand in that sort of harrowing uh, experience in that scene. And that uh, he didn't like lose it right away there. Like he had to endure a, a whole lot of pain, a couple days worth as it was it. Um, is that Ikua Par- Purdy who Ikua went and Purdy, fetched, yeah. who yeah, went and cousin, got the doctor, right? Yeah. He, they, they, the accident happened way up on the slopes of Mauna Kea and, um, they, uh, Ikua Purdy had, to, he was the best and the fastest cowboy in the group. So they knew they couldn't ride Ebenloe down to the coast to get the doctor because it would probably kill him. So Ikua took off and had this epic ride down the mountain. And the first doctor he found uh, wasn't around. So he had to keep riding along the coast to find the next doctor who happened to be uh, stinking drunk. (laughs) But he ended up dragging him back up to the the field station where Ebenloe was waiting and, yeah, in intense pain. And he he saved his life by making this incredible multi-day uh, nonstop ride, bringing the doctor who eventually had to amputate Evan's hand. But mm. uh, if anybody was going to do it, it was going to be Ikua Purdy because he was the best of the best. So how did eventually the uh, how eventually did the the Hawaiian Cowboys sort of make their make their landfall, if you will, on the frontier days in Cheyenne? Well, uh, Eben was kind of the uh, the entrepreneur in the whole story. He was, you know, he was one of the better Paniolos. And then even after he lost his hand, he was, uh, you know, probably the best one-handed Paniolo in the islands. He still was roping cattle and setting all kinds of records at rodeos. Uh, but he also always had the, the entrepreneurial streak in him. So originally he brought... Uh, cowboys from the mainland to Hawaii to these uh, rodeos that he organized. And in 1907, he visited the mainland and, you know, toured all around, actually met Theodore Roosevelt at the White House and ended up in Cheyenne during Frontier Days. And he was watching these incredibly talented cowboys from Wyoming, Colorado and Arizona, but also sitting there thinking, you know what, my guys can beat these guys. So he eventually uh, arranged for the three best uh, Paniolo that he knew to come to the United States and uh, compete in Frontier Days in 1908. Mm. Yeah, and and some of the other characters too. Like one woman I I loved was Bertha Kaepernick, which you, you go into like not a ton of detail, but the, what you were you're able to unpack on her was really was really cool. Like, what was it like finding a character like her? To, to write about. Oh man, there were so many of those. It was another another <laughs> case where we really had to edit ourselves and and you know watch the word count because you can't you can go off on side stories and tangents as long as they're relevant to the yeah. main story, yep. but you can't go off too far because you're going to lose the reader and you're going to get away from the main narrative. But she was yeah she was significant because she was the first woman to compete in uh, bronco riding at Frontier Days in 1904. Uh, basically because it was really rainy and muddy and the men said, no, this is too dangerous. We're not going to do this. And then she steps forward and makes this incredible ride and, and shows them all how it's done basically. And uh, yeah, so stories like that. I mean, there, there's so many side stories we came across in the research for this that, that could easily make their own articles, if not their own books. 
in uh, using a, other books maybe as examples uh you know were you inspired by some other other various books in terms of how you wanted to structure Aloha Rodeo like there were other kind of like all right maybe we can steal the structure from from this book that will help inform the the structure of ours you know nothing really particularly comes to mind for that one i mean we we uh, you know obviously read a lot of nonfiction books a lot of a lot of history stuff but you know the structure of every book is you know kind of unique you know obviously for a history book you want to do it more or less in chronological order um but it's also still possible to jump around a little bit with flashbacks and flash forwards and we did a little bit of that in our book but the overall structure is basically chronological and yeah, and nothing really particularly springs to mind as a, a model for that. Mm. And are there, you know, three to, you know, any, any books that you particularly, you know, revisit and reread that are kind of like a compass for you to kind of remind you how it's done in, in moments where maybe your confidence is a bit lacking? You know, honestly, I, I spend so much time immersed in nonfiction day to day that mostly what I read is fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of some nonfiction books. I mean, things like, well, you can even any fiction you reread too. I mean, the, it's the principles behind great fiction that makes nonfiction like you've been doing really pop. Right. Right. I, I'm trying to think of some nonfiction books I mean, stuff like in the heart of the sea and, um, manhunt was a story of the, the group who helped John Wilkes Booth assassinate Lincoln that's just a, a gripping story and it takes place over the course of basically a couple of weeks. And, um, hmm, I'm trying to think of any others. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing in particular springs to mind. I mean, I read a lot of science fiction and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mystery thriller kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Was yeah, there a no- particular, um, Maybe a, a nonfiction book. Um, I, I know when I read uh, John McPhee's Survival of the Bark Canoe, you know, a bunch of years ago, I was like, that one just clicked with me in a way that I was like, oh, that that's possible. Like you can write about someone who's anonymous and do like a really cool deep dive on, you know, bark canoes that the, you know, the indigenous peoples and Native Americans at the time were, you know, carving all the time. And then there was this one sort of, you know, um, eccentric up there in Maine uh, doing this kind of yeah. work. And uh, I wonder maybe if there's a similar book for you that kind of turned the world, if you will, from black and white into color. Yeah, you know, I would say it probably In the Heart of the Sea was a big turning point for me uh, in terms of realizing that history just doesn't have to be a dry recitation of facts like mm-hmm. it often is in, in when you're learning about it in school, but it can be this gripping narrative with real characters and, and real events. Um, Skeletons on the Zahara by Dean King was another one that took this amazing story and brought it into the, the brought it into real granular detail with, you know, words from the people who were actually there. And, you know, and definitely, um, stuff by the, um, the guy that you just mentioned. <laughs> oh, McPhee, yeah. McPhee, yeah, definitely stuff from John McPhee where I think John McPhee's real talent that I find amazing is taking what could be the most boring, obscure topics and just diving in so deep. And you can, but you can also tell that he's fascinated by it. And I think that's something that you really can't fake is that enthusiasm and fascination with a topic that enthusiasm and fascination with the topic that you can't you can't fake it and you can you can you would know it when you see it and a lot of times that can carry an article or a a a book where it's you know some some topic that eh, you know it might be might be interesting to hear a little bit about that but you know, as a as a writer, if you you can feel yourself falling in love with a story, and it just kind of takes over your thoughts, and you are you just you can't put it down, and you want to learn more and more. I think that's something that that's maybe even the key to writing well about this stuff is you kind of fall in love with your subject, and 
you dive into it and sometimes people actually have to pull you back out. Well, that's uh, that's amazing. I think that's a wonderful place for us to end uh, end our conversation, and uh, what I hope is the the first of several as we as we go forward, a uh, podcast or otherwise, since we're practically neighbors out here on yeah. the West Coast. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, Julian, where can uh, people find you online and get more familiar with your work? Uh, my website is juliansmith.com, and the Delve business is delvestories.com, which tells a little bit more about that. Um, you know, I'm on. Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all the usual stuff. But uh, yeah, that's, that's where you can find me. Big, big thanks to Julian for the time and the insights. That was fun. Mahala. Big thanks also to Goucher College's MFA in nonfiction and Bay Path University's MFA in creative nonfiction for the support. Hey, consider leaving a kind review on Apple Podcasts. It all helps with the show's packaging. Tell me you don't stumble across a podcast and be like, oh, that one's got like 300 reviews. It must be good. So let's let's get ours up there. We're 35 shy away from 100. That's amazing. Let's get there. Also, keep the conversation going on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's just at CNFPod on Twitter and Instagram, at CNFPodcast on Facebook. But if you just type in Creative Nonfiction Podcast, you know. Tag me or the show, and I'll jump in the fire with you. Let's do this. Let's just let's carry it beyond just the conversation that happens on every CNF Friday. I think that's it, friend. Remember, if you can't do interview, see ya.